812. Can't go wrong with 812. Amen. Victory in Jesus. sing this one and then we'll move on. for these good songs. Amen. Thank the Lord for giving us people who could put uh, their feelings into words and into music so that we can express it. Amen. Thank the Lord for that. I believe the Lord gifts people with that ability and I thank the Lord for those that use it for Him. Amen. Amen. And we're getting ready to uh, dive into uh, looking at our trip uh, to Israel. We started last week and going to look, continue looking at that some uh, this week. But before we get into it, well, looky here. They've made it back from Florida. All right. Snuck in here while I'm talking. Good to see y'all. Good to see you back. I will tell you, brother, we've been having a mild winter. If it turns cold now. We're going to blame you, but uh, anyway, anyway, good to have y'all back. Thank y'all for being here. Anyway, we're going to get into looking, uh, continuing to look at this thing here uh, concerning our trip in Israel. Before we get into it, I want to go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, the, uh, for the privilege that we have, Lord, of being able to gather together, to fellowship together, to worship together, to share our burdens and our needs with one another and to pray together. I thank you, dear Lord, that you give us the family of God. I thank you that you give us the house of God. I thank you, dear Lord, that you give us access to yourself. Uh, Father, Lord, that we might have a relationship with you. Lord, that we might worship you. And, 
Lord, that we might benefit uh, from your love and your care for us. Father, I thank you for it. I pray to the Lord that you bless now. Lord, as we uh, look at uh, some of the things, Lord, that uh, I was allowed to experience, Lord, as I traveled the Holy Land. And Father, Lord, as we make application uh, to the Word of God, Father, I pray, uh, Lord, that it will help us to understand your Word. I pray to the Lord that it will help us uh, to get a better grasp on uh, the stories and the accounts that we find in the Word of God. And Father, I pray that it will challenge us, uh, Lord, to be followers of you, I pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness. Be with those that aren't here this evening. Lord, many unable to be here. Lord, I pray you be with them. I pray for those, uh, Lord, who could be here but choose not to be. Lord, I pray, uh, Lord, that you will light in their hearts a desire, uh, Lord, to be in your house among your people, I pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness. Be at the children's meetings, the teen meetings downstairs. Bless and be in them. And Father, we'll thank you for your goodness. Bless now in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. And so last week uh, we started uh, looking at uh, you know, the things that I saw and experienced while I was in Israel, y'all were able to send me, and so I want to share with you what I seen there. And uh, I heard it said many times while I was over there, and I believe it to be a great way to express it. Brother Rick's been to the Holy Land, he might would back this up. But the statement that was said often is, before you go to the Holy Land, when you read the Bible, you read it in black and white. But once you've been there, you read the Bible in color. Everything just comes to life. And so my desire with looking through these slides and showing you the places I went and telling you about them is to help you be able to read your Bible in color for these things to come to life for you. And I've said it many times, but I say it again. I thank you all so much for the generosity in sending me and allowing me to go. And I don't want to waste your investment, so I want to bring it and give it back to you the best uh, that I can. So last week we started looking at this and we looked at uh, the the strategic location of Israel and how important it was uh, uh, that God placed Israel where he put it, that, that Israel was there and that it, that's where he placed the Jews, that he had his ministry in Galilee. We looked at the Jezreel Valley. We looked at the trade routes. We've seen how all this came together for the spread of the gospel. It wasn't random. God chose it specifically. And so today I'm going to start, after having done that, today I'm just going to start to, uh, with our tour there in Israel. And so that's how we'll start. I don't know that I'll follow this all the way through uh, the next several Wednesdays, but we're going to start that way. And so tonight we're going to be looking at Israel in pictures. And so this will be our, our first night looking at uh, Israel in pictures. I do have a, another pointer here. I hope it works better than the one I had last week. Uh, and so, uh, boy, it was funny last week. I, uh, I had bought a pointer to use, and I left the house and was halfway here and realized I didn't have it with me. So I stopped at Pilot and bought one off the novelty shelf to use, and it didn't last through about the second slide, and it died. And so hopefully this one will work better. But uh, anyway, uh, we're going to try to go through this. But anyway, I want to kind of just give you a picture of Israel, and we'll, we'll, you'll see where we're going as we go through this. But uh, you, you think about, you know, well, if you're going to tell me about going there, tell me about all the places that you went, and I plan to do that. But there was something that was surreal from the moment I touched ground in Israel. I cannot explain it, but there was just something surreal about it. I was immediately overwhelmed with the fact that I was here. I was in the Bible land. This is where Jesus walked. This is where it took place. Uh, we were greeted in the airport by a representative of our group that we were touring with, and they told us, they said, uh, the bus will be back in just a moment. The driver ran down to Joppa to get some lunch. 
Y'all know Joppa, right? This is where Jonah uh, ran from the Lord. And I'm like, what? What is our bus driver doing going to Joppa? Somebody stop him. This is what, he's running away from the mission. But, uh, so, but boy, I'm telling you, so you see right here, I'll show you. Let me see if I can find it. Right here is Tel Aviv. Uh, right here is the airport right there. So that's where we landed. That's the only airport in Israel. Uh, and Joppa, Tel Aviv is uh actually Joppa, but there is still a little community right there that is called Joppa. And uh, so we arrived there. Boy, right away, I started making these connections with the Bible land, you know. Uh, the bus driver arrived back in a few minutes. We boarded our bus, uh, and we took off for our motel. And so our motel was located all the way up there on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, where our motel was. And the traffic was terrible, going from Tel Aviv up all the way up and around the Sea of Galilee, and we were stuck in traffic for hours, literally. Uh, as I said, my bus driver was gone to get lunch, and it was dark when we got to our motel. Uh, we were stuck in uh, traffic for hours. Um, but on the way to the motel, we drove past Mount Carmel. Now, we weren't able to visit Mount Carmel, uh, but we drove past Mount Carmel. And the sun was just starting to set as we drove past Mount Carmel, and the tour guide that was on the bus, he pointed out, and he said, right here is Mount Carmel. This is where God answered Elijah with fire, right here. And I'm just looking out my bus window as the sun is setting across the side of that mountain, and I'm like, wow, this is unreal. This is where it really happened. This is where it took place. We got to our uh, motel, like I said, it was right there uh, on the... Uh, uh, sea of Galilee, uh, the, the motel was right up against the water. I could walk right out the door of my room. All the, all the rooms, I, I call it a motel, but it was like a bunch of little cabins that were all connected. So y'all kind of had our own little cabin. I could walk right out the door of my cabin, right onto the beach, right onto the Sea of Galilee. And so we got there, and uh, we enjoyed a kosher dinner. And that is something I really hadn't thought about, but everything you eat over there is kosher, boy. They make sure. Uh, they served uh, breakfast in the motel, and it looked like sausage patties, but it weren't sausage in them patties. I'm not sure what was in there, but uh, everything was kosher that they fed you. But uh, we were able to uh, go there and... Uh, when I fell asleep that night, that first night, I was exhausted, uh, had traveled for uh, about 20 hours, taking, you know, considering the time to drive to the airport, the flights and the layovers, traveled about 20 hours, and I fell asleep that night, and it was just surreal. This is where Jesus was. This is where Jesus walked. This is, this is the land he was on. The next morning, our tour began at 7.30 a.m., and uh, I'm telling you, it was wide open every day. We started at 7.30, and we got back to the motel at dark every day. Uh, just go, go, go uh, everywhere. But uh, our tour began at 7.30, and our first destination was the town of Nazareth, uh, which if you go back, Nazareth is right there. And so we left here, drove around the Sea of Galilee and down here to Nazareth. I got to know the Sea of Galilee really well, driving around it every day. But anyway, right here was Nazareth, so that was our first uh, destination, was the town of Nazareth. Now, the first chronological mention of Nazareth in Scripture is found in Luke 1.26. This is the first time chronologically. Now, Nazareth is mentioned in Matthew, which comes before Luke, but chronologically, the first mention that we have of Nazareth is in Luke 1.26, when the angel Gabriel was sent to carry the message to Mary that she was to be the mother of the Messiah. This is the first place that we find that mention. 
Right there in Luke 1.26, I see y'all turning, so I'll turn over there with you. We'll read that uh, verse, Luke 1 and verse number 26. We see here that the Bible says, And in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. We see here that this is the first mention of this little, insignificant, unknown town named Nazareth. The name Nazareth means to blossom. Very interesting that the name Nazareth means to blossom because it was here in this little unknown town that the Son of God would grow into adulthood and fulfill the prophecy that we find recorded in Matthew 3.23. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Nazareth is a very wonderful place to visit. Our first stop once we arrived in Nazareth was Mount Precipice. That'll be the next slide. We looked at this in our slideshow Sunday night, but this is a view off of Mount Precipice. And, of course, what you're looking at there is the Jezreel Valley. And so this right here, Mount Precipice, uh, is a location we read of in Luke chapter number 4, verse 16 to 30. Luke 4, verse 16 to 30, we read of this location. Now, it's interesting that we're looking at this tonight because Sunday mo- this past Sunday morning, we looked at Luke 4, 1 through 13 uh, about the uh, temptation of Christ. And then we see that after the temptation of Christ, uh, it says in verse 14, let's just start there tying back in with our message Sunday, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. So this is a picture of the start of Christ's ministry. He was baptized. He was tempted. After his temptation, he came back full of the Spirit. He began to teach in synagogues. He was being received. And in verse number 16, he came to Nazareth. Now remember, Nazareth is the town that Jesus grew up in. Jesus is 30 years old. Jesus has lived in Nazareth his entire life. He has worked as a builder his entire life. Uh, It's a small community. Everyone knows him. The the community is made up of family, friends, and relatives. That's who lives in Nazareth. Jesus comes back to Nazareth. It says in verse 16, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. The eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarapta, a city of Sidon, unto a a woman that was a widow. And many lepers 
and many were leper, and many lepers were in Israel. I'll get that straight in a minute. In the time of Elias the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and led him unto the brow of the hill, whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. This is the mount that uh, traditionally they say that Jesus was taken to for the purpose of throwing him off headlong for the purpose of killing him because they rejected him as Messiah. They wanted to throw him off. We see here that they took him up there. They drug him up there. They intended to throw him down to his death. But the Bible says Jesus miraculously passed through them. They, they were able to get him all the way up there, but when it came time to throw him down, somehow he just walked right through them and walked off. You would have thought that this miraculous escape would have clued them in that this indeed is the Messiah, but no, it only caused them to reject him more. And we see in Luke chapter number 5 that Jesus moved his headquarters to Capernaum to begin his work there. From this viewpoint, when you're standing here on Mount Precipice, you're looking south at the Jezreel Valley. Uh, if you turn and look north, which is on our next slide, you turn straight around, so you're looking exactly the opposite way. This is the modern town of Nazareth, much bigger than it was in Jesus' day. Quite a big town. It's mostly populated, populated by Arabs now. A great big town. That is the, the modern-day uh, city of Nazareth. From Mount Precipice, you get a very good view of the Jezreel Valley, which we talked a lot about last week. Uh, but if you show the next four slides there, fellas, just go through them kind of slow. Here you can see the Jezreel Valley. Next slide, there's another view. Next slide, there's the Jezreel Valley. One more slide. So all these are pictures of the Jezreel Valley that you can see off of uh, Mount Precipice. And as we talked last week, it's the only place that you could cross Israel east and west uh, if you were traveling without going over mountains. And so it was a strategic trade route. And also it became a natural Battleground. This is where many, many, many battles have been fought. Just go, go to your Strong's Concordance, or if you use an online tool, just type in the word Jezreel, and you will find that most of the places where you find it mentioned in the Bible, it's connected to a battle. Uh, Jezreel was a place where many, many battles were fought uh, because this was a trade route, a natural battleground, and this is where the Battle of Armageddon will be fought. Uh, one day. Speaking of battles though, if you look to the east of Mount Precipice, you'll see Mount Tabor. So looking right over here, you see that mountain right there? Uh, that is Mount Tabor, and I find this very interesting. Those of you that are FBI students, although I was not here Monday night because I was quite under the weather, I did watch my FBI classes at home, and doggone if Brother Yates didn't teach my lesson. I'm like, Brother Yates, what are you doing? But uh, he taught the very thing. He did a much more thorough job uh, uh, than I'm going to do this evening. But you see, uh, that is Mount Tabor. You say, well, what is Mount Tabor? Uh, maybe I've heard the name. I don't recognize. Maybe you know exactly what it is. We read of Mount Tabor in Judges chapter number 4. Now, we're not going to turn over and read the entire story just for sake of time. But in Judges chapter number 4, we read the story of Barak and Deborah. Um, you may remember Barak and Deborah. Uh, so Israel had come under uh, oppression by Jabin, king of Canaan. Israel had rejected God. You'll see this over and over and over in the book of Judges. Uh, Israel sinned against God. God will allow an opposing king to put, bring them under oppression for their sin. 
And for whatever reason, Israelites act the same way as people today do. They would put up with the oppression for quite a while before they would finally repent. And boy, don't you see that happening nowadays. Uh, people sin, they begin to reap the consequences of their sin, and they stubbornly continue in their sin until they just can't take the oppression no more, and finally they call out to God. This is what's going on. Israel uh, has sinned against God after the death of Ehud, and God allowed them to come under oppression of Jabin, uh, king of Canaan and they were under oppression of, of Jabin for 20 years. But after 20 years, they said, God, we're tired of this. We need delivered. And God said, they're just waiting on it. I'm just waiting on that prayer. And so God raised up Barak and Deborah uh, to deliver them. Now there's all kinds of interesting things we could talk about about Barak and Deborah. Uh, Deborah was a prophetess. Barak, uh, she said, Barak, you need to gather 10,000 men. You need to go against Sisera, who was the captain of Jabin's army. You need to go against him and defeat him. God has said you'll defeat him. Barak said, I'm not going unless you go with me. And uh, Deborah said, well, if I go with you, the victory's not going to be, uh, give, the, the, the fame won't be yours, but it'll belong to a woman, but it's not going to be me. It'll be somebody else. Very very interesting story. If you have time, you ought to go read the story in Judges chapter number 4. But anyway, uh, Barak and Deborah gathered 10,000 uh, men to defeat Sisera. Give me... My lifesaver had got stuck there. I had to get it free. But anyway, uh, Deborah and Barak uh, gathered 10,000 men uh, to defeat Sisera. Now this next slide is a map, and I'm going to show you a little bit of what happened right here. And so... Barak and Deborah gathered 10,000 men and they, they gathered all these men right here at Mount Tabor. They gathered them from two different tribes uh, over here to the west and they all gathered uh, here at Mount Tabor. Now uh, Sisera uh, brought his army and 900 chariots of iron and Sisera gathered his guys down here, down here close to Megiddo, down here is where they gathered. Then another guy came. Uh, and he told uh, Sisera that Barak was up here getting ready to attack. So Sisera, and I'm very, I'm, I'm uh, summarizing this for you just for sake of time, but Sisera says, all right, we're going to go get him. So Sisera comes right up through here, uh, and uh, Barak and Deborah and their 10,000 guys come off the side of the mountain. Now right here is the Kishon River. It comes right through here is the Kishon River. And they met at the base of Mount Tabor on the Kishon River. So that kind of gives you a picture of how everything's going together. If you go to that next slide, we'll see the mountain there again. So De uh, Barak and Deborah and 10,000 guys are coming off the mountain. Now when you look at that, you're like, really? That don't look that big. But if you'll realize right here is a huge town right here. So the mountain is bigger than, than it looks at first glance right there. It's a very large mountain. Here's another huge town here. So here comes Barak, Deborah, and 10,000 guys. Here comes, actually from over here, comes Sisera and his army, and they come coming this way. They meet right here. Right there's the river Kishon, right through there. They meet right there at that river, and the angel of the Lord, the Bible says, showed up to help because Barak and Deborah with their 10,000 guys didn't even have correct military weapons, uh, were not equipped to fight Sisera. But they met right there at the river. The angel of the Lord came down. And the Bible says the angel of the Lord discomfited Sisera and his men and God gave them the victory. However, and y'all know this story, but it's just fun to tell it. Sisera escaped. And so Sisera, the captain, he escaped and he took off running. Now you remember the guy that came and told uh, uh, Sisera 
uh, that uh, Barak was going to advance. Well, uh, Sisera goes running to someone who he thought was in that category with those people uh, uh, to Jael. And Jael's there and he comes to her tent and uh, she says, come on in. And he says, I'm thirsty. Can you get me something to drink? So she gives him some milk. He asks for water. She gives him milk. Uh, and of course, uh, being exhausted, the heavy milk, he goes right to sleep. And then that gal takes a tent peg and a sledgehammer and drives the tent peg through his forehead and nails him to the ground. I'm telling you what, if you married to that woman, you best be on good behavior. Uh, but uh, nails that feller to the ground, uh, and the fame of the battle went to jail. And even today, when we tell the story, we talk about Deborah and Barak, but you know who we love to talk about? Jael, that woman that nailed Sisera to the ground. And God gave the victory, and Israel uh, was once again out from under oppression. And so the Bible says that the angel of the Lord discomfited them and he gave the victory to them. After we left Mount Precipice, the next stop was the Nazareth village. And so this is just a model showing you the village that I'm going to show you. Uh, this model will kind of give you an idea as I go through it uh, where we were. You see over here these olive trees. This is the garden area. You'll see some pictures of the garden area. Uh, then these are the houses. Uh, I'll show you a potter, uh, somebody uh, spinning wool, a uh, carpenter. All that's in all these buildings here. Uh, this is the tabernacle uh, that we'll visit, and then this up here is the museum. Uh, but that's just a model to kind of show you uh, where we're at. So whenever we went uh, to the Nazareth village, the Nazareth village is a village uh, that was excavated. You can go on to the next slide. That's all right. The Nazareth village is a village that was excavated and in excavating, they found a first century farm. Uh, there had been a work, working farm in Nazareth, first century, uh, and in uncovering it, they found a wine press. I showed you a couple of slides from it on the Sunday slideshow that we did. They found a wine press and different things, and so they've restored this farm uh, and reconstructed it back to what it would have been in Jesus' day, and they've done a very good job of trying to... Uh, show some exhibits that depict uh, how first century life would have taken place. It's very, very, very probable uh, that Jesus visited this farm when it was a working farm. It's very probable he knew who lived here. Very probable he may have came here for gatherings. He may have worked here as a carpenter. Very, very likely Jesus visited this farm and it's been reconstructed uh, as a village would have worked in first century uh, Nazareth just to give us an idea of what was there. When we visited there, of course, we seen olive trees and we'll talk more about the olives in a little bit. Olive trees are everywhere in Israel. You'll find if you look in the Word of God, the Word of God is full of references to olive trees. And so there was uh, several olive trees there. There were houses. You can see there in the center, uh, opening of a house. There were some first century foods, uh, wood-fired ovens, different things like that. You go to the next slide. Uh, we've seen a a lady preparing a food for a meal. Uh, we met the village carpenter, and strangely his name was Joseph. I'm not sure if they were being honest about that. But uh, anyway, <laughs> there was a, a carpenter there, the village carpenter. Uh, there was a potter. There was a lady spinning some wool. Uh, you see the rugs there uh, back here? Um, so she was spinning the wool, this raw wool, and making thread, and then she works on these rugs. And uh, the tour guide... Uh, picked up one of the rugs, and he said, the lady's name was Hannah. He said, these are 100% Hannah made. And uh, he thought it was really funny uh, that they were Hannah made. 
Um, but uh, so we got to see all these different reenactors, and they talked with us. And uh, this gentleman here, uh, the carpenter, he uh, he had some pretty nifty tools. I was standing to the back of the crowd, and uh, like I told you, there were about 80 of us in this group. And so I was to the back of the crowd, and I couldn't get pictures of it. But I'm telling you, he had some neat tools. I'm like. Well, y'all were smart back then, or you're smart now. One or the other. He had hand drills and all kinds of things that were all hand-powered. That was very interesting. Uh, but we got to visit all these people. And throughout the village, uh, several things have been reconstructed to help the visitor visualize what first century life would have been like. In this next slide, we'll see that we visited a sheepfold. Uh, this here was a sheep's fold. Here had some sheep and a shepherd here watching over the sheepfold. Uh, there was a wine press. Uh, this here was very interesting. They uncovered this there where he's standing uh, is the uh, basin where they would pile the grapes and then they would mash them with their bare feet uh, and then the, the grape juice would run through this little slot. I don't know if you can see it. There's a little slot there into the vat below. Uh, and so that was an actual working wine press from first century. Now, interesting thing is that they mashed their grapes barefoot. And I never knew why they mashed the grapes barefoot. Uh, I just didn't know. I thought there was a reason. I didn't know the reason. The reason they mashed their grapes barefoot is because there are seeds in the grapes. And if you wear shoes or, or any kind of, uh, even a sandal, you can't feel the seeds. And you'll mash the seeds and it gives the grape juice a bitter taste. So they do it barefoot so they can feel the seeds and so you don't get the taste of the seeds and your juice. You get the taste of feet instead. So <laughs> not sure if that's better or not. But anyway, that's why they did it barefoot so you wouldn't mash the seeds uh, in the juice. And so they mashed that. There's where they did the grape juice. Uh, they, had a, they had constructed this tomb. This was not an actual tomb. It's just a tomb they constructed uh, to show you how tombs would have been made in that day. There was this good old friendly donkey. He was a nice guy. enjoyed petting him a little bit. Uh, and then here was some vineyards, uh, and all through Israel, everywhere you go, it's a hilly country, uh, and they use these terraces, and so they build rock walls, and then they fill, the, the, fill it in with dirt, build another rock wall, fill it in with dirt, and then they plant their, their plants in these terraces, and so that is all over Israel. You'll see these terraces uh, where they make that. And as you look at each of these, we could spend a great deal of time on these pictures because each one of these helps you visualize and helps you understand the parables, the accounts that you read in the Bible. It helps you visualize uh, when Christ is talking about things and how they happen and where they happen. When you're there and you look at this, it just helps those stories to come to life. And you're like, oh, so that's how it was. That's where it was. And definitely uh, brings the Bible to life. In the village, we also visited a reconstructed synagogue from the days of Christ. And here is the reconstructed uh, synagogue. Now, this synagogue's not in the exact location it would have been in Jesus' day, uh, but it has been reconstructed exactly as it would have appeared. They said that it would have been uh, uh, a mile or so away from where it's located now. Uh, they moved it in here to this village and reconstructed this uh, synagogue here. Uh, but it's made exactly the way it was. And we visited several uh, ruins of synagogues. We'll look at some of them in weeks to come. But all the synagogues, it's very interesting, they're always made with an open area in the center, as you can see here. And then the seating goes around the outside. And uh, they, this synagogue here would hold a little over 100 people. 
uh, and all the seats go around the outside and then the speaker would, would stand in the center in the open space and that's uh, where he would speak at. And so we see here that this is the synagogue been reconstructed. This is the synagogue that would have been in Nazareth that we just read about a few minutes ago in Luke chapter number 4. Now, right here, this little table, and we've seen several, they're made different ways, but they all have this same type of top on them. If you notice these little indentions, you see the four little indentions on it? That is what holds the scroll. So when you set the scroll on the pulpit, you would roll the scroll. And so that's where the, the round parts at the both ends of the scroll would set in these little grooves. And then you would just, you would just take and roll the scroll like this as you read. And you could just stand there and turn it and turn it like this. If y'all remember Sunday, I showed you the one pulpit that was a model of the temple. It had those same grooves in it, several things like that. And so... We see here that it was right, it was in this synagogue that Jesus would have stood before his townspeople and he would have unrolled the scroll. Now right there behind that little podium, if I can pick this back up again, right there this clay jar, they would keep the scrolls in these clay jars and they had little lids that fit on them. And there's actually a room right over here from where I was at, I was not able to get a picture of the room, but there's a little room here where they had the clay jars uh, stored uh, with the... Uh, scrolls in them and so they would go in there they would select the the scroll they wanted they would bring it out they would set it on the pulpit and then they would roll that scroll and they would uh, find the place that they wanted to read so it's right here at this pulpit or a, or a pulpit very much like this that Jesus would have stood he was given the scroll of Isaiah now I was not allowed to take pictures at the um, shrine of the book uh, but at the shrine of the book they have the scroll of Isaiah that was found at the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you remember that, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found the entire book of Isaiah and they have it displayed there. It's 24 feet long. 24 feet long. So they brought to Jesus the scroll of Isaiah on two rolls, 24 feet long. I have to imagine it was pretty hefty. And it says in Luke chapter number 4, let's just go find that verse real quick. I just want to read this to you. In verse number 17, And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. He stood up there. It wasn't random. It wasn't. He was specifically looking for a passage of Scripture. And remember, in that day, there weren't chapters and verses. And he just rolled that scroll till he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he began to read from the prophet Isaiah. But as we said a moment ago, after he proclaimed the wonderful news that the Messiah had come, his own relatives, friends, and neighbors, those that had known him his whole life. Think about this. Jesus lived a sinless life. He lived a blameless life. Now, somebody might recognize me from my childhood and have right to want to throw me off of a cliff. Maybe same with you. I don't know. Some of us were pretty ornery when we were youngsters. Jesus lived a sinless life. He lived a blameless life. It's pretty, pretty easy to recognize that this guy was somebody special and they have watched him his entire life. And he stands before them and he says, 
this day. Is this saying fulfilled in your ears? Your Messiah is here and his own family and friends and relatives and neighbors flew off their seats, surrounded him in anger and drug him to the mountain with intent of killing him. You know what? When we read that story, we wonder how could they be so blind? How could they be so blind? But yet every day, thousands of people continue to reject the Savior. When nature itself proclaims that there is a God, when the Bible clearly describes the way of salvation, and yet thousands of people still reject Him each and every day. After we left the tabernacle, we visited the olive press. And this is our next slide here. This is the olive press. Olive press was very interesting to me. It was something I really had not given much thought to at all. Uh, but the olive press really intrigued me. And we visited this uh, olive press here. The Bible has many references, as I said, to the olive tree and to the oil that is made from the olives. And there's a great application that can be made to our Savior when we consider the olive press. Now the first step uh, to making olive oil is to crush the olives in a mill to remove the olive pits. And that's what this gentleman's doing here. The donkey that I showed you earlier was supposed to be doing what he's doing. And this, uh, this guy here, this tour guy, was complaining that the donkey was not working the mill. Uh, he said, the donkey's supposed to be up here doing this, but I guess I'll have to be the donkey today. And so he crushed some olives for us there. Uh, but you take and you put the olives in this uh, vat right here, uh, and then you take this wheel and you take it and go round and round and round, and it breaks the olives open and removes them, uh, the pits from the olives. Then you take the pulp and you put the pulp in these woven bags. And I don't know if you can see, but you see there's a big hole in the center. Uh, there's also a hole in the bottom, similar to that. It's not as big. Uh, and then you pack the outside, kind of like an inner tube. You pack the, or a tire, you pack the outside uh, with the olives, and there's a hole in the center and a hole in the top uh, of these woven bags. They put them in there, and then they take them to the olive press where the oil is extracted. This next slide is a couple pictures, uh, three pictures actually, of the olive press, and I'm hoping that you'll be able to see uh, this clear enough to understand uh, what has taken place. I really wish that I would have videoed this guy as he explained how this worked, but uh, he was three-quarters of the way done when I had the idea that I should have been videoing him so I could remember what he said. Uh, but uh, anyway, they take it there. But here at this press, the olives are pressed three times. Now, I mentioned this briefly uh, in, our, in our presentation Sunday, but I want to give you a little more detail this time. The olives are pressed three times. The first press comes simply from the weight of the olives being stacked on top of themselves. So you see the stack of woven bags here? So they would fill the woven bags up with the pulp and then they would stack them on top of themselves and then just let them set. And just the weight of the olives, olive oil would begin to seep out of the bottom of the bags. This was very pure olive oil. You go to the grocery store and it says extra virgin olive oil. It's probably not, but this was. Um, and so uh, they would get that super pure olive oil and they would just let the weight of the olives press uh, themselves and get that super pure oil. That oil was used uh, only at the temple. 
They would take that oil and it would go to the temple. It was used for sacrifices, anointing, and other things that they used it for in the temple. The lamps in the temple were only to use this purest oil. That's what that oil was used for. The second press uh, was accomplished when the beam that you see there was lowered on the basket. You see this plate right here? It's got a hinge on it, uh, and then it's propped out here on this end that you cannot see. Uh, and so they would un they would uh, loosen it, and they would let the beam down, and this plate would come down against the woven basket. And then they have these three rocks right here, and you see these things here. They had a wrench that they would turn these with. And so once they lowered the beam, they would turn these and they would raise these rocks, each weighing uh, close to 1,000 pounds. They would crank these rocks up until they had the full weight of all three rocks pressing on the baskets. And that was the second press. And so then they would take that oil, and that oil was used for cooking, making soap, lotion, etc. That's what that uh, oil was used for. And then the third press was accomplished. Uh, they, would, they would lower the weights. And then they would lower the hinge point back here. So they would drop this beam way lower uh, on the hinge point. And then they would lower the beam again, crank the rocks up again, and get the third press. And the third press uh, produced the greatest pressure, and it would squeeze the very dregs of oil out of those olives. The very, everything they could get, it would press them out of them. This was the lowest quality oil. Uh, it was used for fuel and household lamps. Uh, it was used for oiling tools, oiling your leather, other things like that. Uh, it was a very low-grade uh, oil. The application, though, that we've seen from the olive press that just was tremendous. When Jesus went to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, which was on the Mount of Olives, which was an olive garden, this is where he went to pray. The Bible tells us in Matthew 26... You can turn over there to Matthew 26 if you want. Verse number 36. When Jesus went there to pray, this is before going to Calvary. This comes the time for Jesus to go, to give his life on Calvary, to shed his blood for you and I, to become the sin, to take on the sin of humanity. Verse number 36, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be very sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto his disciples and findeth them asleep and saith unto the Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. If you turn over to Luke chapter number 22, speaking of the same occasion, 
In Luke chapter number 22, in verse, uh, I believe verse number 46 is what we want to look at here. Excuse me, we'll look, we'll look back at verse uh, number 44. This is the third time that he goes to pray. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And When he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. There's a tremendous comparison between that olive press and Jesus praying in the garden three times. That third time he went to pray, that pressure was so great that it wrung out the very dregs of his soul until the veins began to, his sweat became great drops of blood. He was pressed in his spirit till he had nothing left physically. And yet he was willing to become sin for you and I. Now I know that the suffering, the physical suffering of Calvary was immense. And I do not in any way want with this next statement to take away from the enormous suffering that Christ faced on Calvary physically. But I believe what he was suffering over here was he was going to become the sin of all mankind. He was going to take every wrong deed that had ever been committed or ever would be committed. You think, you think of some of the vile wickedness that we hear of on the news. You think of some of the things that mankind does that just appalls our ears and we can't even imagine to think that someone would be so vile, sinless, spotless, Lamb of God was about to have every bit of that dumped on him. He was going to be so vile that his father was going to turn his back on him. The pressure was so great, it was as that third olive press when the, all the weight is on it. It exhausted him of everything that he had, and yet he said, Not my will, but thine be done. And he went to Calvary, bore our sin, suffered and bled and died that we might have salvation. What a Savior. What a Savior. What a Savior. So our next slide here, after we left Nazareth, the same day, this is still the first day, we visited all this that morning, then we went to lunch. After lunch, we traveled right down through here across to Israel, uh, over here to Megiddo. Where'd Megiddo go? There it is, right here, to Megiddo. And next Wednesday, I'm going to tell you all about Megiddo. So you can be anticipating that. We've got a lot to learn from a ghetto. So hopefully y'all enjoyed that. Hopefully that helps the Bible come alive. Because boy, I'm telling you what, it is tremendous to just see all these things come together. And whenever you read the Bible, all of a sudden you can see it on the map. You can see the picture and you can visualize what it is that the Lord is talking about. So hopefully that's a blessing to you.